Welcome to the Spirituality Out Loud podcast, where you'll hear real-life stories of people's unique spiritual journeys in their own words from their own viewpoints. Hosted by Leslie Seidel, relationship expert and spiritual mentor, who specializes in working with people on their relationships, from their romantic life to their work life and just plain life. Here's Leslie. Welcome back to another episode of the Spirituality Out Loud podcast. I am Leslie Seidel, your host and relationship expert. If you are enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to rate, subscribe, and share the podcast. It goes a long way in spreading the word and helping others to find us, and I'd really appreciate it. Today, we have Felina Donales, who is a mindfulness coach. She's Greek-American who has dedicated her life to help people around the world create lives at home and at work that they wholeheartedly want to be present to. And I am so excited to hear her journey and her story today. So let's get started. Hi, welcome. Good morning, Leslie. Good morning. I'm so excited that you're here and we're just going to dive right in. So as you know, the place that we begin is your beginning. So just curious when you um, were growing up, what you were raised with, um, either religion or spirituality or how you experienced that aspect of life. Yeah. So um, first, before answering that, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate what you're doing and what you're putting out into the world. And these conversations that you're inviting people to have about their spiritual journeys are so important. And it's like, I wish every time I listen to one of the podcasts, I'm like, I want to grab one of those people and be like, come have coffee with me at my house. Come sit with me around a dinner table and with you too. And I just, I love that you are inviting us to have more meaningful conversations in the public space. And I just, I know it's a labor of love for you and there's so much effort and work and all the logistics and all that groovy stuff behind it. So I just want to start off by thanking you. Ah, you're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it gives, it gives us all a chance to um, kind of peel back the, um, the, the, the screensaver like, that I like to say and kind of look and see what's, um, what's behind it. And so for me, I was raised um, by Greek immigrants. And so my childhood was in some ways typical of the immigrant experience. Um, and we had, so we had a very, um, interesting relationship with being Greek Orthodox, which was my parents taught me to pray. And that was, um, that was important. They, you know, they said that there was a God, they talked about that there was a God, but then I, I, the, the behavior that I really observed that was happening was really incongruent with a loving God. And it was really more of a, you know, be good because otherwise God will punish you um, kind of thinking, which I'm sure many of us have grown up with. And, um, and I remember very specifically, Leslie, like one of my first memories of like my own spiritual awakening, if you will, was of being really, really little and watching my mom pray for something. And it was usually something really dramatic and big. There was an enormous amount of intergenerational trauma in my family um, from way, way back. And so there was painful things that were always happening in our life. And so what I would see was my mother would pray for these things. And then when, she, then when they happened, when the good thing happened, there wasn't like a saying of thank you. And I had been taught, right, as a little kid, you learn how to say please and thank you. And so I was like, wait, I don't get it. Like you're saying please to God and he's given you the cool stuff, but you're not saying thank you. So it was really weird. And I got that very, very early on that like something was wrong with the loop of just asking for goodies and not expressing gratitude. And there was a lot of that. 
which is amazing as a little kid. Like, wow, good for you. You know, yeah, well, really notice that is, is for me way beyond what I was noticing when I was a kid. Well, there was, it was a lack of, you know, it was congruity. It was like, you know, one of the things I think children are so beautiful about is we recognize when something is not an integrity or there's not authenticity someplace. And usually, and for many of us, it's not safe enough to say that. It wasn't safe enough in my home for me to say that, but I knew it and I felt it very, very deeply. And I was in conflict about it. And sometimes I would get mad and I would have like fits um, uh, because there was just there's so much of those mixed messages going on. And, but, but what was interesting was, and so those were those first kind of intuitions of there is a loving order to the thing. There is something more than what I can see, you know, with my eyes and here with my ears. And yet, and then, and then as I was getting older though, there was conflict was developing with our relationship with the Greek Orthodox church and with the social aspect of it. And so what I saw was that my parents were, you know, came to this country as immigrants. They were very poor and both had very traumatic childhoods backgrounds. My, my mother had been given up um, when she was just a couple of weeks old and then taken back later and then given up again. And my father was uh, three years old when there was a massive earthquake that destroyed the island that he lived on. And he was the seventh of seven children on this island. And so you know, he had this massive trauma in his life. So there was, there was a lot of trauma in our home. And when we looked to the church for sucker, that didn't happen either. And mostly what was happening that I was aware of as I was going into say my teenage years was that what they were talking about were the judgments at the church. Like who was wearing what clothes, who was wearing what shoes, you know, how much money Joey's restaurant is making and not Dimitri's restaurant, you know, and there was, there was a lot of shame and judgment there. And so that I was holding with the same experience though of being, you know, going to Easter, for example, and having this really rapturous experience of connection. Um, and those very few moments in my life where I can still feel it in my body, that, it, that visceral embodied experience that we're all one. And then it would disappear and it would go away. And I can still feel like I'm still getting the chills as I'm talking about it in this moment. Um, and what was really beautiful was, you know, to kind of loop back um, last year, I, I'd been listening to the podcast on being for many, many years with Krista Tippett. And it's, it's one of, you know, one of the most amazing podcasts. And I had an opportunity to write my story on the blog there about my relationship with the Greek Orthodox Church. And it was really healing for me because from that moment, I felt as a teenager, it was like, I, I knew what I was feeling was real, but the people and the social constructs around it just didn't resonate. And there was, there was not, that, that didn't feel loving. That was like not the presence of a loving creator. That was like, look at Jenny's shoes and oh my God, hasn't Sophia gained weight and that kind of stuff, which just kind of turned me off. Yeah. I just, I really appreciate like, one, I want to tell you that I, I, I want to hold that my son has wisdom He's three, right? And maybe in making sure that our, uh, my husband and I are open to allow his wisdom and he to feel safe to call us on things that we may be blind to, mm. right? And that's like such an honoring thing to, to stop and say, okay, let's put that down. Like, let's, let's, let's make sure that there's space for the children who are innocent and seeing things that we in our, you know, our adult brains don't see. And so thank you for that. I really mm. want to make a point of that. Mm. Right? It's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm just, I, I, one of the things that I hear over and over again in this podcast and in general is 
you know, the shadow side of religion, right? And this, this difference between uh, of spirituality and religion, and sometimes they meet up and sometimes they don't. And, and like all shadow work, it, it, you have to acknowledge it. You have to like see it and say something about it for, you know, because even, you know, every single religion, every single philosophy has the shadow, mm-hmm. right? And so how do you find your path and still live within the shadow? Not that a teenager should do it, like, right? You don't, might not have the skill set at that, pace, at that place, but, um, but that's, I think, the problem with a lot of religions today. Yeah. And what I really love about that, Leslie, is like there's not necessarily an organized process that I've observed for talking about that within organized religions. And so most of us go out outside of them and we talk bad, you know, we talk badly about them and then we come back and then we try to go back in for some from some solace. And it's really, you know, there's a lack of um, there's a lack of authentic uh, congruity with that. And it's it's very, very complicated. And so it's interesting, you know, this is, um, it touches on the, on the piece that I wrote for On Being. And it was really, I had this experience where just a few years ago, I went to a local church, a local Greek Orthodox church, and I wanted to light a candle for my mother who had just passed away and who had had a very, very tumultuous relationship, but with whom we'd had enormous healing and um, forgiveness by the time she passed. And I went into this church on either the night before or a couple nights before Easter in, um, and uh, I wanted to light a candle and make a donation and just, you know, say a blessing for my mother's spirit. And um, the priest who was there, who was, you know, albeitly, albeit this is the busiest time of the year and I have tons of compassion for that real job. But basically he said to me, leave your money on the table. I'll take care of it. And it was like, what? It was like, wow, I'm heartbroken. My mother has just died a few months ago. I'm coming to my people, you know, where, you know, in a far away land, you know, these Greeks of the diaspora, we try to kind of huddle together. And this is the welcome that I got. And it was really a, um, an opportunity to kind of look in and see, wow, you know, he's, he's human just like me. He's human just like me. And this institution is made up of flawed humans just like me. And so it was really an opportunity for me to, to um, have greater compassion for him and compassion for myself and everybody else who has been refused refuge in, in a place of worship, whether you're gay, whether you're the wrong color, whether you don't have enough money, you know, whatever reasons why people are refused solace, it still happens today, regularly and systematically all over the world. I just felt this enormous outpouring of compassion for everybody who's ever gone through that experience of turning to somebody or an, or an institution that's supposed to heal, you know, my spirit and my heart and being, you know, turned away as if I hadn't made reser- reservations at a four-star Michelin restaurant, you know, I mean, it was that kind of experience. Um, and it brought up those, those childhood feelings of being back in the church and being too poor or not having good enough shoes or, you know, our restaurant wasn't like the other people's restaurant or, you know, or, or, all of that shame and less than that I'd had as experienced as a child really came up for me in this situation as an adult. And what's great as an adult, like you said, you have the tools to bring it into the light of awareness. Um, my Buddhist practice really helped me with that and, and to talk about it and to share about it and to go public with it rather than letting it eat at my spirit, um, which is what most people do. I've observed and a lot of times we don't have, we don't feel safe enough. And I'm the first person in my lineage who's had an opportunity to speak the truth. That's a pretty, pretty big thing, right? Right. Can, I mean, when holding that, like that's a sacred duty. And so 
Um, so I felt a lot of responsibility to, to speak up about this, to own my own voice, but also everybody in my lineage who had never had a chance to say something to the priest who was unkind or um, who touched them inappropriately, right? Or dude, all these kinds of things that we've been exploited, um, many of us have, and I didn't have a chance to talk about it. I, I got a chance to talk about it and that was beautiful. Just the generational healing that occurs. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and it, there's so many times in which I think that my life is this isolation. And yet when I look back, you know, I was taught, I went to school, I went to grad school for psychology and yeah. my mom flippantly says, oh yeah, your, my, your grandmother wanted to do that. Yeah. And I was like, wait, what? And there's a piece of me that was like, oh, I'm only doing this because it's been this like passed down thing. Right. But it's also just this energy of a woman who left her house at 18 and married a 30 year old man who cheated on her. There was never any idea that she could go to school, do all of these things. This woman didn't have that. And that I get to. And in the healing that happened, that there's an opportunity for healing and you're taking that opportunity and it's hard. It's work. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. work. You showed up, you wrote a paper, you said, you didn't just stop at that interaction of ow. Yeah. You said, okay, ow, and how do I attend to this? Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I want to honor that work. Thank you. It's, you know, what's, what's beautiful about what you're saying is that this, this, I see this whole opportunity to have these conversations as part of that healing for everyone. We don't, you know, a lot of times it can be, you know, new age spirituality can, or any, any spirituality, which isn't identified with the Abrahamic religions is pretty much considered new age spirituality, which is kind of silly, but it is. A lot of times, one of the great criticisms is that it can be, an, um, it can seem to others to be an exercise in navel gazing and can be quite self-absorbed and not looking at the impact in society and across the oceans and through time and through space and time. And so um, I love what the Course in Miracles says and, um, about there is, no, there is no spot where God is not. And so by having these opportunities to bring in spirituality to the past through speaking it in the present, we, we get to manifest that, you know, we get to manifest that. And who knows, we light the path just a tiny bit more for somebody else and give a tiny bit more courage for somebody else. And that's, does it get any better as a human being? I don't know if it does, but maybe not for me. <laughs> You're here. <laughs> me too. So, okay. So you, um, you, you questioned it at, as a teenager, you finally said, okay, no, yeah. which is kind of the job of a teenager. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and then kind of how, how did you get, what happened next? Yeah, so, so the, the piece too as a teenager that was very interesting that I think I, I see a lot of people kind of um, in that phase was I, you know, my intellect was ramping up and, um, you know, as a highly sensitive child who also had this intellect, you know, being a voracious leader, a reader, I was a loner, I was an only child, you know, all of these things. And then I start having, getting a lot of props for this intellect. Um, and so what do you do? You know, you kind of become, start becoming more and more um, buying into the intellect and the power of the intellect more and more. And so as a teenager, I, that's all I did, which was really focusing on getting out of my family of origin, getting out of, getting out of the house because it was so painful, finding the way out, which was, you know, going to college. And it was, it was really an incredible experience of, 
really relying enormously on the intellect. As I look at it back now, I know that 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 was a gift as well. That was given to me so that I could get out of those circumstances. But I became very closed and turned off to spirituality and religion and anything that I couldn't see. I became very cynical. You know, I was I was a teenager in an enormous amount of pain. I mean, it was it was so bad that when I was I was asked to speak at my high school graduation, Leslie, and I was homeless and nobody knew that. Hmm. And that speaks, yeah, and that speaks to how the burden that I was carrying for my family, right? I was carrying so many burdens. And, and this is kind of the, one of those most prototypical moments of really being something on the outside and on the inside, sitting with enormous pain all alone because nobody else could hear it because I couldn't trust that anybody could hear it. And so as a teenager, I was like, if I'm to get out of this, it's up to me. You can't count on anybody. And uh, I managed to get myself into Georgetown, and and uh, then I got a graduate degree at Johns Hopkins with you know scholarships and student loans, and you know and and whatever support that my family could offer me, which um, you know they did what they could. So it was a um, it was a I'm going to turn away from this spirit that in my heart I know is true, and I'm going to play the game because that's how people succeed. They play the game. Here, here. And I got that message at a, at a young age. And so I did that for a long time. Well, and it served you, right? Yeah. You needed to. It's this idea of like the hierarchy of needs. Like until mm -hmm. if you're homeless, it's really hard to do anything else, mm -hmm. yeah. you know? And I just, mm -hmm. I, I just want to hold your little 18-year-old self, Yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And you look back and the 18-year-old and I just, 17 is so young. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And just... um work you worked hard you worked so hard and and this is what's beautiful is those gifts you know those gifts are shared with us right and so it's like now looking back i see you know every we always have everything we need not necessarily what we want but we always have everything we need and that was what i needed to get to the next place mm -hmm. and the next place was wonderful you know i ended up at a jesuit university and that was the first time that I, you know, I was going to study international relations and I wanted to be involved in international politics and I wanted to change the world. And I thought that the way to do it was to change laws, you know? I mean, of course, that's what you think when you're 18. Yeah, exactly. And laws are important, don't get me wrong, but, um, but that was really what the motivation was to help, you know, make the world a better place and change the laws and change how this mad little orb we have um, gets run. And so when I was studying international relations and politics at Georgetown, um, there was a really strong um, uh, emphasis on service and the, the Jesuit background. And it's so ironic now, um, Leslie, but I have to tell you that when I was planning to go to college, I had all these schools that I was interested in. And that was my top pick. I wanted to be in Washington. I wanted to be where the action was. And the one thing I didn't like about Georgetown was that it was a Jesuit school. Yeah. And I was terrified that they were going to shove religion down my throat. And it was, it was exactly the opposite. It gave me a love for, um, for an even deeper love of philosophy um, and of really getting in touch with my Greek roots of uh, being a philosopher. And so today I often tell people I'm a philosopher because I love wisdom. Like, yeah. why does it have to be, why is a philosopher a term that we only attribute to white guys from 3,000 years ago, right? Like, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, um, and so it was this really oppor great opportunity to do some really rigorous um, scholastic study of reading the basic text of having a pretty interdisciplinary approach to looking at the ethics of international relations 
and getting some of the underpinnings that really inform my life today that I wouldn't have had had I had I not been um, had I not been guided by spirit to end up at that school. So um, and from that place, there was a there the the conflict started gr growing after I went to you know then I uh, went to graduate school and I did a master's at Johns Hopkins and I was immediately recruited to start working at the World Bank which was okay now I get to make a difference right now right yes now I get to help everybody because it's the whole world and it was awesome it was wonderful it was wonderful in what in many 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 respects for that age and for that first. Um, awakening into this uh, world, this really big world. And, you know, I thought I had traveled, you know, cause I'd been to Greece a couple of times and, you know, I'd been to Mexico and I thought I was well-traveled and I end up at the World Bank and it's like, wow. And so it was really a wonderful education, but it was also this understanding that the way, it was the, the, the beginnings of the idea that the ways in which we were talking about the world weren't really reflective of reality. Because what would happen was that when I was there and then subsequently um, in, in my career, I, would, I, I got involved in, I was recruited to go to Europe next and I ended up working for the European Union doing post-war reconstruction assistance in a conflict zone, right? So here you are in a war, after a war, and now you get to clean up the war and what do you make of the war? And what I saw, the kind of what happens in the aid industry was tragic to me. What was happening with how people's poverty and pain was being sat on top of by this huge organism of capitalism was very painful to me. It was very, very painful to me, but I didn't have the language for it. I was still part of the system. I was still, I was still doing great. I was still thriving. I was still running around the world and doing all of this, but something inside of me didn't, um, didn't, didn't resonate with that. And that led to the next thing that happened. So, um, yeah. I just, I mean, one of the things there's a, there's a bunch of, I like to listen to the, um, threads of commonality with, in these. Yeah. And so, um, the pendulum swinging, right. Didn't get your needs met spiritually. See ya, no spiritual cutting it off. Yeah. I will be all intellect, yeah. right. Which is the conflict we're having now. And now you've, you've done it right. This arrival, which is one of the most painful spaces for a lot of people when we finally get what we think we want <laughs> and the travel. I mean, really having an opportunity to experience other people's experience in a deep way really has an opening, has an ability to open people up yeah. if you choose to take it. Yeah. So now you've accomplished what you needed to accomplish. You have money, you have travel, you've got the great business card. That was my thing. I always wanted a good business oh, card. Oh, totally. It was so good. It was so good. <laughs> Little stars on it. And, oh yeah, it was great. <laughs> oh, geez. It's like the perfect weight goal for me. It was like, ah, yeah. I achieved it. And so then what happens, right? I mean, that's some heavy work going into war-torn communities. Yeah. So... What yeah. happened next with that? So before I get to what happened next, because it's kind of a pivotal part of the journey, I just, I really want to reflect on what you just said, because it's really, really important. And that is about what happens when we travel. And I think, you know, it's well established that our first, our first uh, experience of the divine has to do with how we connect to our parents and our homes, right? And so if you are in this isolated little home and you're seeing, you know, behavior which is unpredictable, chaotic, violent, fearful, 
you develop this notion that the universe is hostile. You know, Einstein said the most important decision you'll ever make is, you know, to decide if it's a hostile or benign universe. And that when you've had those type of formative experiences, it's very easy to extrapolate that the rest of the world is like that. And so what was great about travel and what I've always loved about travel and being in other people's lives is, wait a minute, like, that was just one perspective. Like that was one, just, just one teeny tiny perspective on, of, of the world. It happened to have been mine, but just because it was mine doesn't mean it was truer than any other perspective of the world. And when you go to other communities and see how other people live, for me, what that's always done for me is helped me to kick, like, is to look at what are the elements that are in this community that I'm craving and that I'm, I'm hungry for. And part of the reason that I left Washington DC and I moved to Europe was because I was craving community mm-hmm. and found that when I was with people in Europe that there was, um, there was more time to sit in Greece. Uh, you know, pe- friends had time to sit for a coffee. Um, sometimes there would be three hours <laughs> with coffees. We, we might exaggerate it a little bit, but there was time for community and relationships and friendships. And the, 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 the more kind of prototypical American ideal of you work hard, you do it alone, you make your money, you go home and you watch TV was like, what? Like that just didn't seem, you know, didn't, didn't seem really what I was craving. And so I was, I was feeling this longing for community. And that was kind of what pulled me to Europe. And it's still a very important part of my life now. And so it's like wandering around the world, picking up those little tidbits and I finally come to the place, Leslie, where I proudly say I'm total California spirituality, which I used to mock terribly years ago, right? Yeah, because it's a little bit all over the place. Um, so anyway, but to get back to, um, yeah. Um, but I like the idea that, you know, one of the interviews I did with was a guy who just took spirituality and like methodically went through his life and added it to relationship and added it to work and added it to, you know, like he, it was really, it's, it's an interesting way to do it. And, um, and what I hear you do is creating as you're growing up, the building blocks for what you need internally, right? You do need your intellect. You do need community. Oh, I need, do I need community? Right? Like, that's one of the things that's missing. And, and to like, I hear you having this life and intentionally or not intentionally, but finding this pieces that you need to be fed as a human being. Yeah. It's the golden, you know, it's, it's, I, I think of the stories of, um, uh, in the labyrinth, you know, in the palace of Knossos, you know, where there, there was a, a thread that was left, a golden thread left, um, so that um, he could get out of the palace, right, out of the, out of the labyrinth. And so I see this golden thread that I've continued to be guided, as I believe we all are. You know, my journey is no exception. Um, it just has some bigger colors and some bigger booms at times than some other people's. But that, that golden thread of, oh, if you keep your eyes open, if I keep my eyes open, I'm getting what I need here. Mm. And that was really... What, 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 what happened um, for, you know, for me at the next place in the journey was very much that the pressure of being who everybody, I believed everybody wanted me to be, right? <laughs> right? Was just too much. And so, you know, it was affecting, you know, I, I had a really distorted relationship with my food and body and my personal relationships were a mess. And so there was all of this stuff 
that because the screensaver looked fine, you know, people didn't really bother me. I still looked, quote, successful in the culture. And then one day I was living in Belgrade doing reconstruction assistance there, and I had gone out with a friend, and we were sitting in front of my house after going out to dinner. And as we're sitting in the car, it's, it's October and it's cold in Belgrade. And I, I remember seeing a guy walk just, just past us, Leslie, and he has on a short sleeve shirt and he's walking to the car in front of us. And it was only because he had that short sleeve shirt on in October in Belgrade that I noticed it because it was quite cold. And so he walked to the car that was right in front of us, the next car parked ahead of us. And when he opened the door, there was a bomb and the entire car exploded and so did he. And all of the alarms of all the cars in the neighborhood went off and so it was, it was literally like a scene um, from a movie. And what happened next that night was very frightening for me. So eventually an ambulance came and you know, we saw this person being immolated, um, which was horrifying as you can imagine. But what was even more horrifying was there was a, um, a nightclub across the street where mostly people who were diplomats and people in the international community um, and people who had made monies from the wars, right? Because there's a lot of people who make money off of war um, were at this club. And they, got, they, they were coming outside and they were watching what was happening and they were just picking up their cell phones and smoking their cigarettes and they were so blasé. And that broke my heart because what I, what I observed was they had hardened themselves so much to handle these wars that here was a human being in front of them who was dying and they, they seemed to be immune. And now I know that they weren't. I mean, I know that they were as shocked and traumatized as I was. But what really terrified me that night, Leslie, was that there, I, I knew that if I continued doing this, that's what I would become. I was on the path to closing my heart. I was on the path to um, not caring because it was too painful to care. And so what, um, what divine order did for me was give me this spiritual crisis. And so I, you know, I couldn't go to sleep. I couldn't eat. I couldn't be alone. I couldn't be with people. You know, they tried to give me all these drugs, which is what we do when anybody's in pain. And everybody was saying to me, you know, if, if you're going to do this work, this is going to happen. You know, people are going to die. You know, you're not a toughen up kid. And, you know, when I got my master's degree, actually Meryl, uh, Madeline Albright was the one who handed it to me. So I had a good example of the path that I was on. Of This was a woman who had become very tough, right? And there were a lot of consequences from her decisions in the world. Something inside of me said, no, no, I, I can't. I can't. And so I had this... Um, what's commonly called a spiritual awakening, uh, a breaking open point, a nervous breakdown, call it what you will. But I ended up, um, I, I left the job and I went and lived on an island in Greece to begin this process of healing and of really exploring what had happened to my humanity. Because I was so busy doing everything that this world, the world of, of materialism told me were the right things to do, that I was losing what made me human. And um, and, and, the, and the universe was not going to handle that for one more minute. So I was taken out. Well, you know, there's a couple of things. There's choices. You made choices. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the 12-step program talks about standing at the turning point. Yeah. And you made choices. And you could have made a different choice and you didn't. I don't need to judge other people's choices, but I also know that, like, 
you know, sitting in the fire, I have had those times, right? I had a job opportunity for IBM corporate and I just, I just knew that it was being integrated into the Borg, right? Like my life was going to be gone. I was going to be in upstate New York and there was just, there was no vacation. There was only the phone and that work and, and that it had appeal, right? Like talk about a business card. Um, <laughs> but I, it was a choice. My father was passing away at the same time. So which do you want to choose, right? This limited amount of time with your father or this thing. And then the, the disintegration of sitting in that mm. and choosing that. It's really, it's, it's enormously hard work. Yeah. And breakdown is absolutely how I would describe it. Yeah. And work, you know, living in the world and fighting your way back spiritually and emotionally and mentally. And financially. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're here. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and the world doesn't hold that space very mm. well. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, that's like, what are you doing? Get off your, come on, let's go. Yeah. Um, yeah. and I gotta tell you from this perspective on the other side, it is the Phoenix being reborn. Yeah. And it is, I mean, and it's not a fun process, right? Like having all of your pieces <laughs> be reoriented, but it, thank God I did it. Yeah. I am more secure, more me. I guess that is the biggest point. I'm more me because I showed up to that spiritual crisis. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Right? I mean, would you say that to be true for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, 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 I, I think, uh, I think that the experience for me was so much of, it was only, in, it was only safe for me to inhabit my head. Right? I could be up in my head and that was safe, right? Because that's what the world told me to do. And I could do that. I could follow instructions. I was a good, you know, I was a good student. Give me the books and I'll study it. And I'll regurgitate it. You got a lot of bonuses. You got right? Money. Yeah. You get lots of perks for Yeah. But to move down here to the throat, to the body, to the chest, to the belly, and to fully inhabit the full humanity, it's really a life's work. And so it's really interesting to observe, like we have to have, I was having all kinds of health issues and I'm so grateful that when I, when I, when I ended up leaving the job and going to live on the Island, I had so many health issues that were manifesting. And that was my body screaming and yelling, saying, this will not stand. Like, if you don't listen, we're going to take you out because <laughs> you're hard talking. We've been talking, you, right, been, you, haven't, right, you haven't been listening, so we're going to take you out. Yeah. And it was a very slow process. And, you know, it's, it's funny because a lot of times when I hear, I love to listen to podcasts and I like yours and I, I love to hear people talk about their spiritual journeys and they're like, oh, and, and this is not to demean anybody's spiritual journey, but it's very funny to me when somebody has a crisis and then within three months later, they're like, you know, a guru who's coaching about it. I'm like, wow, like, that's impressive. Like, I'm talking like over a decade of work here and I'm still working with it on a daily basis, you know? And I'm a, um, and so I, I say that because it means continuing to have a humility. And what that moment did for me was show me how far off I was, you know? I had complete lack of humility. I mean, I was I was a nightmare, you know, I was a nightmare to people because I was in so much pain myself that I couldn't see, I, I couldn't see how I was causing pain for others. And I was so isolated spiritually myself that I couldn't see beyond my own nose. 
right? Well, and so you it were took- doing, doing to others what you were doing to yourself. Absolutely. Which, which is what we all do. Back to the Greek Orthodox yeah. priest who was doing to you what he, he couldn't stand your grief. And so he was doing his job, right? Yeah. And it was, I was just on the phone with one of my favorite people of all time. And she, she just, she's having a bit of a hard time. And she just asked me in all earnestness, do you think Oprah cries on the floor? You know, she, Oprah just did this big thing on the Golden Globes yeah. and it was super inspiring and totally beautiful. And I, and with all of my being, yes, absolutely. Does. Absolutely. I'm, I'm getting, the, yeah, I'm getting the chills just hearing you say that. Yeah. And, and yes, that what I hear you saying is that's what you did. Cause that's what I did. Yeah. I was on the floor weeping, mm -hmm. being like this dog who you just saw was the only reason I was getting out of bed yeah. and being like, how do I parlay that into a life? Right? <laughs> and God and I would have these conversations where I'd be like, you take Stella and we're through like, just to be clear. Right. Right. And, yeah. and I in that process of being reborn. So I really honor the fact that you're, you did the spiritual journey and the spiritual journey is messy. It's, totally. it's not, it, it doesn't look like this. This is me at the other side of it. Mm -hmm. and I still have work and growth. And that means sobbing and fear and doubt and showing up anyway. And so thank you. Yeah. It's so, I, I love what you're saying because one of the things that's so funny is, is um, I love having the opportunity to do things in face in, uh, face to face in person with people um, and doing them on video is great too, because we have opportunities like this one. It's very interesting though. You know what I, 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 I teach classes here at, in Palm Springs as well now. And it's like, I, it, that opportunity to share with them what's really happening. So here, I'm going to share with all, all this stuff with you that I have picked up on the journey. And here's the reality. I just had a whole big, you know, what fit with my, with my honey yesterday because he's doing something I don't like. Right. And that's, those are the teachers that I've always connected with. And so when I first started teaching Buddhism, I was, I was asked by my teacher to start uh, teaching. And I was like, I'm not ready for this. Like, I'm not interested in this. I just wanted to heal my spirit. Like, I don't want to teach. Like, that's, you know, crazy. But I said yes. And I remember there was a guy who came to my class who was a monk who had been for, for several years in Nepal. And he shows up at my, at my class. And I'm thinking, oh, really? Like, like, why are you putting me in front of him? Like, why? Like, I will teach anybody, but please not him. Mm. So he's just a huge, like, lovely, lovely human being. And he's sitting in the front row of the class. And afterwards, he comes up to me, Leslie, and it was one of the greatest gifts of my life. He said, you know, Felina, thank you so much for that teaching. You're such a wonderful teacher because you're authentic. And it broke my heart mm. because what had been the thing that I was most ashamed of, my emotions, my bigness, my Greekness, my, my tears, my laughter. Here was somebody saying that this was what now made me a good teacher. Mm. And it was such a generous gift to be given by somebody who I admired enormously. He was, you know, really, really deeply humble human being. And so that's become really one of the, of, of the kind of tells, which is, it's not necessarily about what I think it's supposed to look like. Like maybe I'm supposed to show up and I'm supposed to, you know, throw my notes away or, you know, a client's supposed to come with me to something. And, you know, I just had a client the other day who I do mindfulness coaching with and we got on the call and she's like, Hey, how's it going? I'm like, you know what? I'm not really shiny today. And she said to me, thank you so much for saying that. 
you know, and I thought, girl, somebody else has done that for me. That's why I can do it here. You know, when I, when I talk to my mentors, I don't need to hear that they're shiny and perfect all the time. I need to hear that I need authenticity. That's what I crave. And I believe in this crisis of, in this, in this culture of social media and of tweets, right? Let's not even go to the tweets. <laughs> I can't even, yeah. I can't even go there. But in this, in this culture of sound bites, we don't get the sound bites of authenticity. And it's very, it's very much what people, we all hunger for. And it's very hard to learn how to do skillfully and, um, and not share your, your daily dramas with people, but also not pretend that your screensavers, you, you've got it all figured out now. Now you've got the you know, nice website and the shiny hair and you've got it all figured out. Because that, that doesn't resonate as true, you know? Because it isn't true. Because it isn't true. You know, I cry a lot. And it's how I move in for, it's how I move energy and I cry all the time. And I finally have gotten to this place of allowing that to be okay. Mm. And having that be this, like, we have these emotions you're not allowed to have. And then there's other, you know, and it's like, no, what if this is just, it's fine. You know, and the authenticity mm -hmm. piece, I need my teachers to have skin in the game. You know, I need, I need to know that you understand where I am and you have found a way through it. Yeah. Because if you popped out all shiny and perfect, I'm not, not. interested. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't even, cause that's not my path. So, you know, and, and I frankly like, don't know a lot of people who have that path, Leslie. I mean, no maybe one. they're out there, but I haven't seen them yet. Maybe no they're one. out there and I hold space for the possibility of that. Right. But it's, you know, and one of the things that's, I think it's really interesting at this time, particularly, you know, we're two women having this conversation about spirituality and what's very, um, what I've noticed is that in the conversation about spirituality, what wants to get left out so often is the body and the emotions and the feminine, right? And so this is really, so this is what the spiritual bypass is. So, you know, people like, um, uh, you know, Ram Dass, for example, this great spiritual teacher who used all kinds of psychedelics to have these incredible mountaintop experiences. And his guru would tell him, okay, you might've gone to, you know, the mountaintop, but now you're going to have to learn how to walk up there one step at a time. And what that means for him and for my life and for the lives of many is we have to integrate that spirituality with this messy humanity, with the fights with our partners, with the tears, with the, you know, bagging, sagging parts of the body that start to bag and sag, right? With, with the financial, um, with the, the, the impact of poverty in this country and income inequality, right? Which, which breaks our hearts open. And so it's really, I think it's really, really um, a statement about where we're coming to spiritually in this country at this moment for women like you and me, which is spirituality in order to be, to be, to be really vital must be embodied. It must be embodied and that's through tears, that's through crying, that's through um, being open to the, the heart. And one of the, the, the challenges a lot of times with organized religions is that we don't see that honored in sacred ways. You know, there's those criticisms. I, I was talking to a woman the other day um, at a yoga class that we attended, which was on the lawn here outdoors and it was absolutely gorgeous. And she said, you know, for so many years, I've internalized this misogyny about myself that I, I'm messy, that I'm not linear, right? That I need more time for self-care. And I, I was so proud of her. Like, I was like, you go girl, like go sister, because that's, that's what happens. 
And so not only do we suffer from that patriarchal approach, but so do our men. They hurt so much. They hurt so much. So when, we, when I think about an embodied spirituality that brings in the whole human experience, the emotions, the messiness, the tears, you know, the, how does your child know that you love him? Because you wipe his bottom every day, right? Right? Not, you know, I mean, that's one of the ways your, your baby yeah. knows you love it, right? So let's call a spade a spade, like the human body and our emotions and the embodied experience is what connects us to one another because we need each other, right? And, and instead of having that, that spiritual experience, which is I'm going to meditate and I'm going to be by myself and I'm going to achieve nirvana and I don't need any of you. I don't well, like it anymore. Honestly, yeah. it's way easier to be on a mountaintop than go through traffic and be married <laughs> and have a three-year-old wake you up at 2 a.m. Yep. Like those are, it's way I can be spiritual by myself, right? Like that, Absolutely. you know, for me, I really appreciate this idea of like, I, the body is telling me something. Emotions are telling me something. This is information that I can use. And then applying the spiritual life, the spiritual principles to money, to the relationship. Like, you know, I have been in this like, I'm holier than thou because I, I don't charge for things. And it's, someone calls me on it, like, whatever, you're a spiritual martyr. And I was like, ooh, that's not, that's not attractive. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And just like, okay, like, actually, yes, getting paid rightly is in balance. Yeah. yeah. You know, that the, the choices are not groveling at the floor begging for money yeah. or taking advantage of everything while reaping the land. Like it's all about these balances. Yeah. Intellect is still serving you. Mm -hmm. Your body is still serving you. It's so great too. Cause what you're saying is you, it's really hinting at all of the, all of the spiritual teachings come at this at a different way. If we really apply them. So um, James Finley is somebody who I really respect who studied with Thomas Merton, who is, one of the most amazing human beings, I believe, of the 20th century. And he, he talks about find, find, your, find your teaching and follow it. And what, what's important about that to me is that it, it's very easy to do kind of California-style spirituality, cafeteria, you know, you take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I, I have completely done that. I have, I've had so many different types of powerful, you know, I've had experience with entheogens, I've had experiences in silent meditation retreats, with yoga, you know, there's so many different experiences. But it's really valuable to find a teaching and to really follow it. And so when I look at the teaching, Buddhism is one of my primary teachings that I follow and try to share with others in a non-religious way, but looking at right livelihood, looking at right effort and right livelihood, right? And so it's exactly what you're speaking of. And so I'm, I'm working with somebody currently who um, she came to me, she's had her own business for about 10 years now, and she's really stuck with allowing greater abundance to flow into her life. And so we're, we're really working together to have this mind shift of recognizing that when you share and, and honor your gifts and you give other people an opportunity to value them, you're practicing the right livelihood and both people are benefiting from the exchange. Because we look when, right, there's that energetic, that, that, that energetic exchange, what's equal. And this is totally a work in progress for me. And it's, it's completely an area where, you know, the messaging from the past is, you know, was, was not really healthy and I'm working with. And so every day it's an opportunity of, of recognizing, okay, how do I, how do I be and embody 
what I know to be true in with universal spiritual principles, this, you know, principles of honesty and integrity and compassion. And how do I also hold the knowing that I, I can give people the other the opportunity to create good karma for themselves. So one of the things that they taught, they'll say in, in, um, in Buddhist teachings is oftentimes that if you see somebody who's about to harm you or somebody else, you can actually help prevent that person from creating negative karma from themselves by removing yourself from the situation, right? <laughs> and similarly, if you give somebody the opportunity as a solo practitioner, as a relationship coach, as a mindfulness coach, whatever, to honor the exchange that they're receiving, you give them the opportunity to create positive karma from themselves, which they wouldn't other wouldn't which they wouldn't otherwise perhaps value, right? Mm -hmm. So totally. it's really it's really about working for me. It's really about this this journey is a big work in progress. And what's fun about your podcast and what I love about what you're doing right now is let's not just wait until we're all perfect and shiny and we've got the Instagram feed done right right before we talk about these things. Like the people that I admire the most are the ones who talk about the journey as it's happening in real time. That's, that's what I'm interested in. And so if, to the extent that I can model that, that's really, that's, doesn't get much better than that. Here, here. And I got to tell you, that is way harder than posting a pretty picture on Instagram. <laughs> it is being open and authentic in everything that I do is one of the hardest things I've ever done. And so well, and so on that note, I want to say thank you because you've done just that, right? Mm -hmm. You've been open and authentic with your spiritual path, the messy, the pretty, the wrong turns, the right, the wrong turn, the right turns, right? Like it's, um, I just, I really appreciate you. Um, the image that comes to mind is you throwing your robes open, right? Like you just saying like, this is who you really are. This is what happened today. And, and I want to say that in the liner notes, if, if you are calling, if someone is called to you, right, that's how I find my teachers because yeah. I hear them and I'm like, wait a minute. And I start digging deeper over there yeah. that, um, tell us, tell me a little bit about how people can find you. Something that I'm, I'm sharing with the world right now is something that I'm really proud of. I put together a little book um, called 45 Days of Mindfulness, and it's a little free ebook, and it's about starting to create a practice for yourself. So many people come to my classes who are like, oh, I'd love to meditate, but I can't meditate 20 minutes a day, or it's overcomplicated. And so this little book is really helpful for how to apply mindfulness to social media, to your eating, to food, to, um, to movement. So it's really giving us chances on a daily basis to practice. And that's on my website at felinadenales.com. So that's um, a great place to um, find me. There's also some free audio meditations that I've recorded on there. And I can also be found on Facebook at Spiritual Fitness Coaching LLC, which is a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. All of those will be in the liner notes. I really appreciate your time and your energy today. So thank you for that. Thank you so much, Leslie. I really appreciate the wonderful work you're putting out into the world and keep on when it gets difficult with using the microphones and you're one more day at the computer. Please know that those of us who are listening and watching really, really honor and value what you're doing and really thank you for the opportunity to share. Oh, thank you for listening. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode of Spirituality Out Loud. Be sure to rate us, review us, and like us on Facebook and share us with your friends.